The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Okay, welcome uh, to this discussion on axial back pain. Uh, obviously, uh, a topic that is very timely and quite controversial. So, first of all, I would like to introduce myself. I'm Rolando Garcia from Miami, Florida, and I'm here with uh, two wonderful colleagues. Uh, my name is Scott Blumenthal, and I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon from Texas Back Institute. And I'm Greg Schroeder. I'm one of the spine surgeons at the Rothman Institute uh, in Philadelphia. Um, well, maybe we should begin by addressing the, uh, the I guess, the, the difficult task of sometimes uh, defining what is axial back pain. Uh, um, Dr. Blumenthal, how do you define axial back pain? And Dr. Schroeder, if you can uh, follow up on that, sure. please. I tell you, I've never liked the term mechanical back pain. We hear that all the time, and I'm not sure what that means. I mean, to me, axial back pain is pain centered in the low back between you know, over L5-S1, L4-5, et cetera. It's a nonspecific diagnosis. And since we're here to talk about whether surgery is a viable option, I think the biggest challenge is not necessarily the surgery, it's the diagnosis in which of the patients with back pain, which is a minority, would respond to some type of surgical intervention. So for me, when I think about axial back pain, I always think about pain that's really at and above the belt line. So when we talk, and I think there's uh, wide acceptance by all spine surgeons that when you have pain that's kind of going down the legs that's the pain from a pinched nerve and we all know that if you take the pressure off of a pinched nerve you can treat the, the leg pain. The question is really what about that pain that somebody comes in and they don't have any pain down their legs and they say you know doc it hurts right back here and they're all at and above the belt line. To me when I think of axial back pain that's what I think of. So what I'm kind of listening to is that maybe axial back pain is basically not a uh, is pain that is non-radicular. But uh, I, would, uh, I would challenge that that definition remains very broad because, uh, for example, is axial back pain surgery that is being considered for someone with a black disc? Mm -hmm. Or are we talking about someone who has 75% disc space collapse, they have a previous discectomy, they have modic changes, and at least in my mind, that patient has a, a more clear diagnosis than someone who just has several black discs. Uh, wh what, how do you work uh, the patient up with axial back pain that comes to you and wants to consider their surgical treatment options? And of course, we, both, we all agree that the primary treatment is non-operative management, but for the sake of this discussion, let's assume that that patient has, has had a thorough course of conservative management and they have failed. Well, you know, it's interesting, Rolando. We kind of ended up in the same place doing the research on disc replacement. But for me, it's, it's basically been my whole career. I started working with um, some of the pioneers, David Selby, um, on some of the first uh, interbody fusion studies. And he introduced me to, to, I think, the person that's defined it the best, uh, who's Dr. Harry Kroc. Did his work in the UK and uh, did some work in Japan, practice in Australia. And he, I sat down with him once, I was in my 20s, and he described how he came up with the diagnosis or the syndrome called internal disc disruption. And he utilized, and it's still around, although albeit controversial, is uh, a technique called discography. And the reality is, like you said, a black disc in most people is not a pain generator. 
So if a surgeon is picking his cases on black discs, it's not going to be very happy. Patients aren't going to be very happy. So you need a specific clinical syndrome of axial back pain, central low back pain, which uh, doesn't respond to non-operative treatment and has some radiographic correlation uh, as well as some clinical findings. Uh, and then if you're really not sure, I think the discogram is still somewhat of a viable test. We don't use it as much as we used to, but I think in confusing cases, it's helpful. In the scenario you, you described, post-discectomy, single-level collapse, I think the diagnosis is pretty clear there. So for me, I mean, I, I would take a, a giant step back and say, uh, you know, even these people who you're saying the diagnosis is pretty clear are people who, in general, I, I don't think the diagnosis is pretty clear. I think the diagnosis is pretty clear in the person with an isthmic spondylolisthesis with translation on flexion extension and axial back pain. That person is somebody who I think the literature is really clear that a fusion will provide them with significant back pain relief. Somebody who has sagittal malalignment and is uh, pitched very far forward and its predominant complaint is axial back pain, I still think correcting them there provides you with a lot of relief. But you know, uh, myself, Chris Kepler, and Greg Anderson at Jefferson have done a lot of work really looking at the intervertebral discs, trying to figure out are there cytokine profiles, are there chemokine profiles, inflammatory markers, what can we do to really identify which patient has, you know, a painful disc. Uh, and I, mean, I think that at least for us, I still can't look at you and say, all right, so you had a previous microdiscectomy and you've got modic changes. So sure, your cytokine profile is a little bit different than somebody without modic changes, but how does that necessarily lead to back pain? Because we see people all the time in clinic that come in that have these cytokine or these modic changes um, that we can say, all right, listen, We've shown that you have a different cytokine profile, but this person doesn't have back pain and that person does have back pain. So, I mean, I, I really struggle with the person uh, unless they really have a deformity to pinpoint them and say, hey, listen, yes, you're gonna do really well with, with spine surgery for the back pain. See, I'll, ch I'll challenge you that the discogenic pain surgery, which would be either single level or double level fusion or disc replacement is much better studied and proven in the literature than either back pain with associated deformity because I'm not even sure that deformity as we get older causes back pain or at least one that justifies fixing, you know, going to T10, T10 to S2 fusions on every 80 year old. And then I'd even challenge you, and we're all taught that, you know, great diagnosis, spondylolisthesis, PARS defects. Uh, you know what, I'd love to see a study looking at single-level PARS defects versus single-level discogenic pain, who really does better? Because I'm not sure that uh, we're getting 90% success rate on someone with PARS defects. Just well, because we see it on the x-ray, they've got back pain, maybe they respond to injection. I don't think they do any better than, in fact, I'd say that my disc replacements do better than, than the single-level PARS defect surgery. I think the majority of patients who I operate on who have an isthmic spondylolisthesis have a, a component of radicular symptoms too from the uh, foramen being very distorted. So I, I think that that person comes in with a combination of back and leg pain. Um, or when you're talking about an isolated disc degeneration, they're probably not having a combination of leg pain. With regard to deformity surgery, I think you're completely right. And the spine study group has now started to show that your parameters have to change as you get older, right? So uh, uh, SVA of five centimeters in a 70-year-old may very well be normal. So that, that person that doesn't necessarily have axial back pain because they have an SVA of 
five, you know, that that's probably where they kind of have should be and where they are normalized. But I think that person, the 70-year-old, the 80-year-old, is a, you know, geriatric sagittal imbalance, I think, is a different kind of animal. I'm talking more about the 45-year-old guy with a, a significant sagittal malalignment. I think the literature is pretty clear that that gets better with surgery. So, Dr. Schroeder, just to follow up on that, let me uh, present to you with a, a case, someone who had a uh, grade two is mixpondylolisthesis, mm -hmm. uh, younger in age, was fused inside to us, mm -hmm. many were done. Mm -hmm. Now there is, they come in, they have most likely a little bit of a retrolisthesis. Sure. They have uh, no significant stenosis, just a lot of disc space collapse and a, the, the remaining levels are normal. What, what is your approach to that patient? So, I mean, if they come, as, assuming for the sake of this argument that they have no uh, ridiculous sten stenosis yeah. picture. I mean, I, I work them up uh, physical therapy. I stress with the patients that it's not enough to do physical therapy. You've got to spend 20 to 30 minutes a day strengthening the core muscles. Um, so that's the first step. Uh, Anti-inflammatories, I usually start with a Medrel dose pack. If that doesn't improve, um, then they can continue on to anti-inflammatories. I always tell people that I strongly recommend against the use of narcotic pain medicine uh, for a chronic um, kind of axial back pain picture, uh, which is often a question that I get. Uh, so once we're done with anti-inflammatories, uh, you know, I try muscle relaxers. I work a lot with my physiatry consults. We do, uh, you know, whether it's a uh, facet injections, radiofrequency ablations, you know, look and see, you know, there's a lot of uh, discussion that's maybe it's the SI joint as opposed to um, the intervertebral discs. I don't personally do SI joint fusions, but I do have uh, colleagues who will get uh, SI joint injections, see if maybe that's the pain generator. Um, that tends to be the way that I go because, you know, when you look at it, you know, there have been countless studies that have looked at, you know, surgical intervention for axial pain, and I just don't feel that I can look my patients in the face and reliably tell them, listen, you're going to do well. Um, conversely, somebody who comes in with radicular symptoms, I can, I tell them, you know, 85, 90% chance we can get rid of not all, but a significant portion of your leg pain. I just don't think that the literature would back up that answer for somebody who has isolated back pain. Except you know, Rolando's five-year study on artificial disc just just did that. Yeah, had patient yeah, I, satisfaction I, rates in the 90s. Um, I, and I would actu actually say that the uh, I think that this was a, a wonderful experience discussing this, and it, it's uh, it's so enlightening to to hear someone's other approach. Um, I actually do have. Uh, the opinion that the, the literature is actually very robust, very consistent in, in uh, surgery for axial back pain on very extremely well-selected patients. And I think that that's what, uh, in, a, in a way, we are, we've been discussing is that you, you have to look at many variables, uh, the patient's characteristics, the patient's age, the, the, you know, the, how many levels you know, they had previous surgery. But I do, I do think that possibly one of my, the most rewarding uh, experiences that I personally had uh, in my 20 years of practice has been uh, for some well-selected patients with axial back pain. Right. The, the problem to me is not that there probably aren't the occasional patient who would get better. It's I don't think that we have the ability to select that patient. Like, how do I know that that patient is going to do well versus the other patient? I mean, there was... Um, you know, multiple studies. There was a systematic review in the European Spine Journal about two years ago that looked at it and looked at eight prospective studies, and it basically said there's no difference in 
outcomes, whether or not you have surgery or you don't have surgery. Now, systematic reviews are a problem, right? Because this is exactly what we're talking about, is how do you select that patient? I guess maybe in your hands, you're better at selecting it. I know in, in my hands, uh, I am not good enough to look at a patient and say, this is going to be the problem that's going to, and you're the one uh, person that is going to do very, very well from this. Well, good discussion. It's been a great discussion. Thank you.